Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. And uh, it's good to be with you this morning. And I want to open with the greeting that Paul opened often in his letters, grace and peace to you in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. This past week marked my very first time ever counseling at a camp. I was a camp counselor at junior week at Shelburne Street Church of Christ with just about everybody, I think, almost sitting here in these first three rows, just about. Welcome, you guys. It is so good to see you. It's been so long. I was tempted to say, can I get it? But I, I won't. I'll just I'll, I'll leave that for now. Okay. Some things just stay at Spruceton, but... Um, it was fantastic. I, um, although I have to say, I was looking at the median age of like counselors and junior counselors, and I did feel about 10 to 20 years too late to begin counseling at camp, but I had an absolutely incredible time. And uh, I know that it's going to keep me young if I keep doing it. So I plan to be back next year. You can sign me up, you guys. All right. Hopefully I'll see you all there. Um, the other thing I got to do was be there while my youngest son, Matthew, was there for his second year as a camper. And the important thing about that was that we had to have some very established boundaries, what that was going to look like. For example, I could not be his counselor at camp. I could not be in his cabin. Dad had to be somewhere else. And I think that was a healthy boundary, actually, Matthew. But with that were some other things. Dad was not allowed to comment on the items that he got from canteen. I was not allowed to comment or give advice on when he would consume said products from canteen. And I think I was allowed one hug a day, just about, maybe two if nobody was looking. I could kind of sneak in there and I kind of ambushed him outside the wash house and be like, ha ha, just give him a big hug. But it was wonderful. It was a really, really wonderful time. But it was good to have those well-defined boundaries. And that's okay because I had seven other kids that needed my time and attention at that camp. Some kids more than others, some kids a lot more than others. None were bad kids. There were no bad kids there. But it struck me in a renewed way how incredibly different walking with Christ is compared to walking without him. And some of these kids are very much walking without him, and that's no fault of their own. But suddenly they are thrust into this environment with very different ways of looking at the world and what is healthy and what is unhealthy, be it in words, thoughts, or actions. More than that, they are thrust into this environment that proclaims how unique and how valuable and how loved they are in ways that are different than how they may have previously heard that before, and in some cases, rarely, maybe if ever heard that before. And they are suddenly thrust into an environment where lovingly, And with what I would call a humble boldness, which I know is an oxymoron, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to them. And when the good news of Jesus Christ begins to be shared with these kids, that they are an incredible creation, that God is always with them, that God is always for them, that God will always love them. See, guys, I was paying attention. Something of significance always happens when that is being proclaimed over anyone, one way or another. These kids receive a taste of Jesus, and I believe it hits them in their being. 
They see and hear things about him that grab them, that catch them, that make them say, oh, what was that? I, wanted, I want more of that. I want, a, I want a better taste of that. I want to experience more of that. Again, something of significance happens, but it does go both ways. Because the simple truth is there is an enemy of God who is, I believe, most active and vocal when the gospel is at its most active and gospel or um, and vocal. When the good news of Jesus is most active and vocal, there is a battle for the mind, for their very senses, for their very heart. And that was the hard part about being a camp counselor for me, was trusting God that he can do something with what has been seen and heard, that something here will be retained. When I can only imagine what obstacles await some of these kids when they leave camp and head back into the everyday world, and I found myself wondering, how might the gospel ever win? And what will the outcome be? Especially for those kids who appear to be taking those steps into a fledgling relationship with Jesus Christ. It's especially in those cases that I can't wait until next year to see those kids and ask them how they are. How has their walk been? Did it get deeper? Did it overcome the challenges that the enemy presents? Did they find a church? Did they get baptized? Will they receive Christ? Will they imitate him in their very lives? In short, will they turn from the life that they knew and serve the living and true God? And this morning, we begin to make our way through Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And when I read the passage we'll be looking at more closely today, I'm quite sure this is what Paul would have been thinking concerning the fledgling church that he was forced to leave. New Christians, these young kids, if you will, in the faith that still had so much learning, so much growing, so much nurturing and maturing to do as followers of Christ how might the gospel ever win? What will the outcome be? Well, let's read and find out. Hear the word of the Lord. And I want to ask, can we just stand while the word's being read? Thank you, Glennis. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. 
We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, our guest preacher, Derek King, gave us a prequel, a behind-the-scenes, or in this case, a behind-the-letter account of why Paul is writing what he does. Paul, an apostle of Christ, a missionary, a church planner, along with his friend Silas, have been forced to leave the city of Thessalonica due to opposition to the message from the Jews. While some of his own people accepted Jesus as Lord, it was a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women, he writes, who came to know Christ and would have formed the greater body of the church in Thessalonica. Now, if you've ever spent any time at all investing in anything important, especially with people, isn't it awful when you're interrupted and you don't get to see the focus of your efforts come to completion I think maybe like of a a school teacher who maybe has a lesson plan that's leading right up to the end of summer, but all of a sudden the bell rings, it's three o'clock on Friday, the last day of school, and the kids are pouring out the door, and what if he didn't get to finish about what happened in World War II? What if he had to like burst out the door and just say, hey, wait, and just see how many kids could turn around and say, I never told you what happened. We won! And all the kids, maybe some of them get it and some of them don't, but you want to see the completion of what you're teaching. You want to see how things go. And your hope is that what you've begun will succeed, not for your glory, not for Paul's glory, not for the glory of the church of Thessalonica, but for the Lord's glory. So let me ask you, as we just heard those words read, did you hear the joy in Paul's words in this first chapter? Did you hear how elated he was to know how things were going for this young church? I wonder, did he write it with dry eyes at all, or was he constantly having to kind of dab and wipe off the water on the parchment, whatever he was doing there? Thessalonians chapter 1 is a pastor's love pouring out, each word written a beat from the pastor's heart, and it's beautiful. God's word is beautiful. And I believe the culmination of this particular chapter is heard in verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turned to serve. The basic story of every believer. One who received the words that Jesus spoke. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn from all the false things that you thought brought you life. And live by the reign of God. That draws near to you. And not simply received those words, but lived them out. And what brings Paul so much joy and thanksgiving is hearing that the church of Thessalonica has not just turned to Christ, but were serving and better yet continued to serve. So let's look a little more closely at this chapter. Now, for some of you more pictorially minded people, You could divide up this letter into parts with three symbols, a seesaw, a trumpet, and a telescope. The first one is a seesaw. You know what I mean by seesaw, like a teeter-totter? One kid's on one end, the other kid's on the other end. You go up and down, up and down. There was a seesaw at Spruceton that was being used and misused in all sorts of 
wonderful ways. It was really exciting to watch sometimes. This is our symbol for verses 2 through 6. And by seesaw, I mean this. In his letter, Paul is describing how what he sees in the people of Thessalonica is exactly what they saw in Paul and Silas. See what I did there? Isn't that cute? (laughs) What he sees, what Paul sees, is what they saw in him. And that is Jesus. Paul uses a combination of words in more than one letter to describe a life marked by Christ, and he uses it here too, faith, love, and hope. And you can sum up a lot of the Christian experience within these three words. While they are used within a single verse, the enormity of their meaning should not be lost on us, for it is not lost on Paul. The church that is filled with faith in Christ pours out their faith in ways that could only be described as a labor of love. And I've seen that in effect these past couple of weeks, especially in this last week, the labor of love that was given by so many of you for those kids. And I saw it the week before that with people helping out, getting ready for kids camp next week, our vacation Bible school that we'll be holding here next Monday to Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. And you have to register by tomorrow. Just kind of throw that in there. But people giving their time and their efforts and their talents to make it happen just because they want to. It's a labor of love. And the church of Thessalonica obviously poured out their faith in ways that shared the love of Christ with so many. And all the time as they continued to do so, it was evident to Paul that their endurance came by the hope of the returning Christ. But we're wading into the area symbolized by trumpet and telescope. So back to the seesaw. All that Paul sees in the Thessalonians is by result of what they first saw in him and Silas and in the gospel. What was it the Thessalonians saw? They saw Paul and Silas, two people, so taken by the message of Christ that they could not deny the authenticity of life in Jesus. Paul writes, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how he lived among you for your sake. Here's the thing. You tell me what you're all about, what you're into, what you love, what you you want to do. You tell me all of that, and I will take those words, and I'll weigh them and ponder them and get a sense of who you are. But you show me. You show me what you're all about by example, and I'll have a much better idea. For example, I know that Matthew Nickel works on incredible racing or incredible cars, sports cars, wonderful machines of art and science that blend together into these incredible fast cars. And I knew that you worked on them and I knew that you drove them. But that night you gave me a ride home in that Alfa Romeo Spider, what's the other part? 4C, it's convertible. Now I really had a better understanding of what you do, and it was fantastic. And I will not tell you what speeds we reached in such a short time, but it was pretty awesome. Paul and Silas put actions to words and spent the time with the church in Thessalonica to show them what it really looks like to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, Paul writes, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Show me what you're all about, and I'll really get to understand that. But if I imitate you, if I do what you do, well, now I really understand. Now I really know. So I'm still waiting to drive the Alfa Romeo so that I can fully understand what Matthew does. Yep, still waiting. And this... And this is what they saw in Paul. They heard the words of the gospel. They saw it in action. And in imitation, truly understood the power of it despite, and this is really important, despite suffering. Paul and Silas, living among the people of Thessalonica, preached the word and displayed it through their lives, and they were run out on a rail. They were chased, not just from that city, but all the way to another city, and then chased there. So why would the persecution stop there? It would certainly come back at the new followers of the church, the new followers of Jesus. And we see it time and time again in the New Testament, be it from the powers of Rome, the powers of man, or the powers of the devil. Because remember, when the good news of Jesus Christ is shared, something significant always happens. In this case, it was suffering. Paul writes, severe suffering. Suffering is an awful word. It's a verb. It's an action word. It is happening. It's not that they've suffered. They are suffering. I think of the people in Williams Lake right now being chased out by those flames approaching their homes. They are suffering. I think of those in our lives who are sick. We are suffering. But in Paul's letter, this action word is surrounded by some other ones that are worth noting. Welcomed and given. What was welcomed? The good news of Jesus Christ. And what was given? Astoundingly, joy through the Holy Spirit. Suffering by itself is an awful thing that we all endure in a myriad of ways. But in Christ, suffering is redefined. While it may be ongoing, it will never be the final result. Not for those who have turned to serve the living God. In Christ, we are given that faith, love, and hope to see something greater down the road. And that is a very powerful thing. And I believe that while the church of Thessalonica's conversations would not have ignored the suffering that they endured, it wouldn't have been the chief object of that. Not when Christ through the Spirit is in their midst. So that's the seesaw. The second picture that I think defines this letter is the trumpet. The next part of Paul's letter could be defined by a trumpet. Listen again. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere, says Paul. The church of Thessalonica's imitation of Christ spread beyond their own territory, and became a model for so many. And again, think of the joy as Paul is writing down these words. The pastor hurtled out of Thessalonica only to hear that the church has not only survived, but it has thrived to the point that it has shared the message of Christ on the widest scale possible at the time. 
And this message, it wasn't just texted with cute little emojis. It wasn't posted on Instagram. It was nothing nearly so plain or unexciting. This is a message that rang out. Words that express a heralding, a proclamation of the good news of Christ at work in the world now, today, for you. And this is a message given by those who turned to serve, people filled by the Spirit, imitating the very life of the one who is life. And it is the message that, as simplified as it was at our junior camp just recently, was still ringing out through the lives and the words of those who are sharing it, expressing it all week to those amazing kids. That's the trumpet. The third symbol to express this letter is the telescope. They tell how you turn to God, Paul writes, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Every chapter, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with this telescope looking towards Christ coming. Have you ever met someone who is just so excited about Christ's return that it's always on their mind? Does anybody know anyone like that? It always works into their conversation or whatever Bible study you're looking at or devotion. It's always there. It comes back to that. But Jesus is coming. And I'm not talking about the ones that get all worked up about the times and the dates. Jesus was clear about the fruitfulness of getting wrapped up and trying to make a formula out of it. Rather, I'm talking about those who embody the final words written in the entire Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I think that was in the hearts of Paul and of Silas, of Peter and John of the church of Jerusalem, of Philippi, of Corinth, Thessalonica, Macedonia, and Achaia, and the heart of every believer that was filled with the spirit of the living Christ and turned to serve him. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. They all expected his return. And soon, Jesus is coming to reign in glory on heaven and earth. Jesus is coming to reconcile all things between us and God and us and each other and us and all of creation. Jesus is coming to rescue us from the coming wrath, the righteous judgment that will set all things right that, as one commentator puts it, is without the imperfections that seem bound up with the purest of righteous indignation of man. Christ is coming in power and glory and authority. Everything he had when he ascended into heaven. Everything that he gives us through his spirit. And this is what filled the believers of Thessalonica with hope. This is what sustains their faith for Christ and their love for him and all of humanity. Jesus is coming. So keep that telescope trained on the clouds, scan the skies and wait, but not with inaction, but with that trumpet message of the good news of Jesus shared with every good action that brings glory to his name. The seesaw. Paul sees what they saw in him and Silas and imitated in power. The trumpet, the message of Christ ringing out with the faith, love, and hope that they display and the telescope looking forward to the coming Christ. The church in Thessalonica experienced what looked like on paper a very unlikely 
unlikely victory. There's a lot of preparation, hopefully, that goes into missionary work and church planning. And having your pastor chased out of the city and your members persecuted is not a good start for any church. And yet, and yet, the gospel has always been the underdog. Friends, never, ever, ever underestimate the power of the message of Jesus Christ. Never, ever, ever underestimate what it can do. Compared to the world, it will always appear weak. It will always appear outdated, outmoded, and that it's outlived its usefulness. And yet, here we are. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and still living out the words and actions of Jesus because the Spirit is alive within us because we serve the living and true God. And that says something. When the good news of Jesus Christ is received, it grabs hold of us, and it doesn't let go, and it changes our hearts and our minds to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to know Jesus, and to live out Jesus every day. The lives that have received Jesus as Lord and Savior and King are the lives that have turned to serve They have turned from the life that they have known to the capital L life that comes in Jesus with power and deep conviction by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, the results and the effects are inescapable. Something of significance always happens. But the message of Christ must be more than just agreed with. It must be imitated. It must be shown. If all Jesus is to us is a nice idea or a healthy way of looking at the world or ourselves, well, that's nice, I suppose, but we've missed the point. If all Jesus does for us is give us some nice principles to live by, some good advice to heed occasionally at our convenience, of course, then our faith is anemic at best and at its worst It is lifeless. Because that is not turning to serve. That is accepting sugary junk rather than the bread of life. And people need life. They need just a taste of it. And we must be there to provide it and be ready to give more when they're ready and keep it available. We need to continuously be owning the faith, the love and hope that we subscribe to, what might that look like? Well, Travis is going to tell us more about that next week, to own that faith. (laughs) As I wrap up, (laughs) you may hear these words about works produced by faith and enduring hope, imitating the life of Christ, which was one of selfless sacrifice and suffering, and you may think, that sounds absolutely exhausting. And sometimes, yes, it very much is. (laughs) I am so tired from last week. (laughs) And some of you guys pulled double duty. You were doing like two weeks. I got nothing to complain about. And none of you have fallen asleep in my sermon. I love you guys. God bless you. God bless you. The power of the Spirit. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) It is tiring sometimes. 
It was hard to be that constant presence, let alone example for those kids this past week. And if for the sake of sermon cohesiveness, we want to label that suffering, (laughs) perhaps it was at times, but it was never the object of my experience. Jesus was. In those morning devotionals, where we get up and we find the coffee, oh, and we sit down in the mess hall and the lights are still off and it's quiet, and JR would start a song about three octaves lower than what we usually sing because we're not quite awake just yet, and yet the room just echoes with praise, and we share with one another, that was Jesus. In those moments of prayer and praise, either in the mess hall or at the campfire with our our fake propane campfire going, kind of lending the ambiance that we so want during campfire. And there were those moments, did you feel that? There were those moments where the spirit just kind of was there. And it was beautiful. And it was Jesus. And in those moments of sharing Christ with those kids, if all that I did there was to share, there's there's one young lady I can think of where I had a moment just to, we're in the midst of everything going on around us, everything's happening, all the people are having fun, and here we are talking about Jesus and talking about what it could look like to walk together in Christ, what it could look like to use the gifts that he's given us for his glory. If all I did was just for that moment, and that she could take that, and God would use that to do something incredible, then I've already said it, I'm in for next year. I really am. That was Jesus. The church in Thessalonica had been so taken by the message of Christ, shown by the words and actions of Paul and Silas, that it completely transformed their understanding of life and of power and of God. And when they saw and experienced the glory that comes from walking with Christ, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And the same should be true for you and I. So let me leave you with one question to take from this, to ask yourself. Who do we know who needs to experience that this week? Maybe it's by letting them see what we saw. Or by hearing it as it needs to be trumpeted sometimes. Or simply by being pointed to the fact that Christ is coming. That what we know as long-lasting isn't. He is. And he's coming to make it all right. And who will we ask for prayer and encouragement this week as we think of that person and as we ask God to help us in that? Let's pray together right now and ask him for that help. Amen? Heavenly Father, you have given us so much. You have given us life, capital L life, Lord God, through your spirit. Lord, you are strengthening us and teaching us, and Lord, help us to walk with you to grow in a way, Lord, that reflects that, that imitates that to the people around us. And Lord, I pray for each person here, as they go from here, Lord God, back to their homes, as they go from here back to wherever it is, Lord Jesus, Lord, that you would put on our hearts and minds someone that we could reach out to this week in boldness, in in humble boldness, Lord God, to share your love with them. As big or small as that looks like, Lord, and would you show us who we could talk to, Lord, who we could ask for prayer and encouragement 
to, to strengthen each other as we do this. I ask this in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would place that name on our minds even right now, Lord God. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you.